Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. Thank you so much for being here. This is a great honor, and thanks for buying into this class. And um, we are we are um, in the midst of trying to adjust how we normally do our teaching. And that's in the past, what we would typically do is we'd have everybody show up, and um, on a Wednesday night, and we'd have some supper, and then we'd have a little bit of singing, and then we'd have a talking moment, and then we'd have kind of like our seminar portion of the evening. And uh, as Chris and Manisha and I were thinking about how to, to work through this kind of in-between stage that we're all in, we've decided to separate it just a bit, to have our talking time now, and then to supply that as a, as a tape for anybody who wants to, who misses this particular presentation, and then on Wednesday night to come together and to um, have a kind of seminar from 7 to 8.30 at the Walgast House, which is 355 Cranbrook Road. If you have any questions, ask Father Chris or me. We'll make sure you get there. We had a, a little of a, a, of a funny moment. Um, this, because we're in construction, we uh, have been using the Walgast House a lot. That used to be a kind of a residence for our musician. And um, it now is open, so we're using it for program space when we do all the construction here. And we had, um, <laughs> we had our, our gardens uh, for, that we usually do for, for the Pontiac um, uh, Farmer's Market that we support. We have our gardens that were going all uh, during the uh, past summer. They produce about 1,000 pounds of produce. It was amazing. Um, but we had one person who was going to water the, 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 the garden. And for some reason, uh, when we were texting her the address, we said 350 Cranbrook and not 355. And so she got out and she went in and she got the hose and she began to kind of water the garden. And the person who did this is kind of, she kind of dresses a little mother earthy, you know, so she's like doing her thing. And finally, like, the people like opened their back door, like, hello. <laughs> she says, hello, back. <laughs> and they come out, they go, can we help you? She goes, yeah, I'm just watering the garden. <laughs> so that's 355. Cranbrook Road is where you can find it at 7 o'clock to 8.30. But it was, it was, I loved that. I just, I don't know why that delighted me so. Um, what's that? I, I know, it really is. And I think they were grateful that she did it. Um, so the, um, and we also, as we were thinking about how to, to do our teaching and our time to come together for this fall, we thought about this concept of thriving. And um, we um, uh, came upon a book called Post-Traumatic Thriving. It's uh, by a, 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 an author named Daniel Bell. He a, a, has a PhD in sociology. He's not a, soci he's not a psychologist, 
Um, there's a lot we can learn from psychologists in what we're about to do. And what we're going to present is um, not meant to be the, take the place of therapy for you. Uh, so if you feel the need to enter into therapy, um, we can assist, but you have many resources around you to find the help that you need, and please take advantage of it. I can speak from experience. Uh, my life has been better because of the therapy that I've gotten. I've been able to hear the gospel better. I've been able to see God and others better, so it's always good to have therapy. We also don't want this to be in any way um, uh, to, to, a replacement for the safety you need. So as we go through some really tough things in this first presentation, if you need a place of safety, um, let us know and find someone who can help you get to that safe space. And I say these two um, preambles because when it comes to thriving, we have to speak about the things that keep us from thriving. And most often those are things that are connected to traumas that we have experienced that haven't been resolved and to grieving that we are doing well or not so well. And so thriving is usually something that deals with those two things. And um, even though we're not therapy, even though we're not able to give you 100% the safety you need in terms of the wraparound support that some of us need when we unpack some of these painful things, the reason why we want to go nonetheless into this topic is uh, I believe, and I think many of you would agree with me, that one of the important things you can do is experience connection with other people. And churches are great places to find an empathic community, a community where someone can uh, be with you as you think about where things hurt and explore some of the terrain of your life and that's part of the work that churches ought to be doing. And it's part of the work that churches do well even today. So thriving is um, something that um, I want to open up for you because one of the questions we've had, that's perfect, you're the best, is what does it mean to thrive? And um, this is a simple uh, opposition that I put together. Um, Thriving is often uh, contrasted with surviving, and you don't have to worry about taking notes, Kathleen. I'm going to make sure you have everything you need from this. Um, we survive when things get better. We fall in love. We move to a new town. We enter, go to a health club and experience something different. Um, you know, I recently joined Equinox. I never realized how much I was going to enjoy a health club. And it doesn't even have very good condiments on the, in the gym. It's still wonderful. Or um, we come out of something in one piece. We make it through something. We escape. Uh, the other day, I was driving, and I got a call that someone needed immediate help. Uh, her mother was dying, and I kind of went through a, a, a stop sign. I pumped the brakes, but I didn't come to a complete stop. And I was pulled over. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to play the priest card. I'm not going to be shy. I said, look, and I'm on my way to celebrate, to, to do last rites. Can you give me a break? And you know what? He gave me a break. I didn't even have that collar on. It was amazing. And I did go. I was telling the truth, obviously. But sometimes you come out in one piece. You didn't have to worry about points on your license, things like that. Um, and then sometimes we travel through grief and find new footing 
Um, by that I mean there are people that go through an experience of grieving and, and they come out kind of more or less intact from who they were before. And then the final thing I want to say that characterizes survival is the trauma that we experience. The wound to our soul um, is, it kind of fades into the background. We forget. And to give just a kind of geopolitical ex uh, equivalent of that, um, you, and many of us know about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that was this moment in which people would actually acknowledge the traumas that had happened to the country and try to experience amnesty so that they could move on. Um, that was not entirely practiced in Africa. It was used in Rwanda, a kind of form of it, but in Mozambique, after a horrific um, conflict in which there were gross human rights violations, the government that came into power said, say nothing, it's illegal. And this happened also in Burundi. Um, the government said, if you report seeing human bones, you'll go to jail. So what they wanted to do is make that trauma go away by forgetting. And oftentimes when you are surviving, that's what happens to trauma. It doesn't get resolved, it kind of goes under the surface. And it emerges a little bit like bones that peek their way out when there's a hard storm. But thriving is different. When we thrive, we get better. We become new persons. You don't, be, you don't stay the same when you thrive after a trauma or after a process of grieving. You come out to be a new person in one way or another, more in line with what you were created to be or who you were created to be, but certainly different than the person you were before. And then when we travel through grief, we find new connections. Uh, my favorite person who writes on grief is not a psychologist, strangely enough. It's actually a gender theorist named Judith Butler. And she writes a beautiful book called Precarious Lives. And um, her argument is that when we grieve, we ourselves go missing. It's not just that we miss the person. It's that we go missing ourselves. We come, she writes, undone and we have to be made up again. And um, that means that grieving for her is a transformative activity. We become anew who we were. And um, finally, when thriving occurs, the trauma we experienced is transcended. It's um, brought into the open, it's talked about, it's experienced, and it's resolved in some way or another. One of the great uh, gifts that I received this fall came from my former therapist. He, he, you know, therapists are not always the best at communicating. I, I'm sorry to say. I don't mean this in a bad way because, you know, I'm a big fan. But so he said, I thought of you when I read this piece of literature. And it was like this academic article 
that was just like dense, right? And I kind of want to tell them, you don't know the post-pandemic bill. The post-pandemic bill has 15 seconds of attention span. <laughs> the the pre-pandemic bill could read that for hours. The post-pandemic bill just needs to get, you know, I'm just trying to survive in a sense, so to speak. And, uh, but in it, it said, uh, it was an article about positive well-being after trauma. That when you go through experiences of intense shame, that you can actually go through those and experience positive self-esteem. And it was such a beautiful compliment to me. And that, I think, is a little bit about what happens when trauma is transcended and not merely ignored and forgotten. So the difference between um, thriving and surviving is key because we all experience trauma and grief. And one of the things that I think is so true about this pandemic is all of us have experienced a kind of trauma. And one of my favorite descriptions of trauma that I really enjoy um, is kind of the basis of this uh, definition that I'm going to share with you, which is that trauma happens when we experience an injury or catastrophe that we cannot understand, process, narrate, or work through so that we can integrate it into our lives. This is kind of my fashioning of it because my experience of trauma um, was shaped by talking to people in South Africa after the TRC and how they described trauma as a fundamental challenge to tell a story. And um, one time I was sitting in a class and um, this incredible teacher, Anki Kroc, took a tissue paper a piece of tissue and handed it out to the class and she said this is your body and soul and trauma happens when you take a pencil should everybody take a pencil or pen and just stab through the tissue and she said and you note that there's two layers to every piece of tissue and that's meant to communicate to you that what happens to your body and soul are wed together and in some ways distinct, but completely enmeshed in each other. Trauma is that wound to the soul, and it affects our ability to tell a story. Now, it also emerges, so many psychologists have told us, and I think this is really important, as strong emotions, as sadness, shame, fear, anger, denial, as physical symptoms of nausea, dizziness, altered sleep patterns, changes in appetite, headaches, gastrointestinal problems, as psychological disorders, although that's a, a funny term when you put it against everything else here, as PTSD or depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and addiction, and um, what I have characterized as interpersonal and relational havoc, reactivity, difficulty with relationships and intimacy, triggered responses, victimization, and predatory behavior. And I just want to ask for a second, because we have a live audience, has, do any of these things resonate with any of you? Can you just show of hands, any of these things have you experienced in one way or another in your life? And um, that's a key thing. I'm so grateful for your hand raising, because I know that standing behind that is a lot of courage. So thank you. Um, we all experience it. I, um, in, in the past year, as much as I've been um, doing better, uh, I've had the altered sleep patterns. 
that just killed me. The last year and a half, I no longer sleep like I used to. And I, I know that, that part of that is the, the stress of having gone through the last year and a half. So um, to say a little bit more about trauma and grief, let me offer then a working definition of grief. Now, all of these things are moving super fast because we want to move through to our, our thriving practices. But here is a, 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 a rough and ready definition of grief. Grief happens in the aftermath of an experience of any kind of loss. Grieving becomes acute when it is unacknowledged, unresolved, or delayed. When it is acknowledged, it follows five stages. There's denial, this can't be happening to me. There's anger, why is this happening to me? Who is to blame? There's bargaining, if, I can, if this can change, I will do this. Um, this happens in, in trivial ways as well as in incredibly sad and, and deep ways. There's depression, I cannot find the energy to do anything. And then finally, acceptance, I acknowledge and I am at peace with what happened. Um, these kinds of cycles of grief have been around for many, many years. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the person who generated them. And what I've seen, and this is just my, as a country parson, uh, view of things, um, and what I think resonates with me is these cycles actually happen whether we, we fully embrace them or understand them or not. They just happen. And so we go through these grieving cycles in a way which can reinforce some problematic things that we do and also in ways that give us positive views. There is nothing that Juniper is going to do, Sally, that will not delight me today. I just want to let you know. So you just relax. I love having her here. I hope she finds some benefit in this. So just to move quickly through this, one example of grief and trauma that I found really, really helpful the last few years has been Donald Nathanson's Compass of Shame. I think it's a great um, uh, way of thinking about things. It's not the only way of thinking of things. I share it with you because I'm one of those people who is shame prone, um, and that's just something I struggle with. And um, it, 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 it gives you a, a kind of way in which uh, trauma and grief intersect because the things that I've shared with you now, these definitional things, these kinds of um, uh, these these kinds of workings together, they, they, these are simple ways. But the way that these different factors play in our lives is infinitely complex. And so this is um, this is Nathanson's uh, compass of shame, which is that when you are shame driven, there is a kind of sense in which you uh, have, a, say, an interaction with somebody, and you either hide from self, which can often manifest as addiction, or you can hide from others, which happens as a kind of isolation. You can um, experience, you can, you can have a kind of fight or flight response where you fight rather than flight. Uh, you fight something rather than flee it, and you can attack others uh, or you can, through isolation, or you can attack the self through depression. And one of the things that I found really helpful for me to do is to study my own responses given this compass of shame. Um, that sometimes because of my upbringing, and it's something that takes a long time, and it's connected to how I was held as a child, to be honest, and uh, also how I was treated as a young child, um, those things, uh, basic kind of attachment moments, have 
um, kinetically gave me a lot of the shame that my parents struggled with themselves. And so because of that, um, I'm often the last to know when I'm having a shame response. And shame is a kind of mixture of grief and trauma that is not uh, resolved. And so what I do is I kind of model, I kind of think through where do I have that? Now there's other little vectors here of anger, fear, distrust, disgust. All of these things can happen uh, over both things large and things trivial. I ate three of those little mini muffins. Maybe, I don't know. So all of this is to say a little disgust, I don't know. It was so, they were delicious. Who eats one little mini muffin? Nobody. So all of this is to say that there's a kind of way in which you can go through any of the things that we discussed right now. And this is superficial, super fast. This is kind of like a, a kind of fly through. And I'm always willing to talk more about these things, but we really want to give the kind of context of why we're doing what we're doing. And this is Randall Bell's Thrive Cycle, which brings together thriving, surviving grief and trauma in a way that I think is both magnificent and, um, you know, uh, something to think about. It's not, uh, this is not gospel, uh, just something to think about. And so his uh, belief, isn't this amazing? I love this guy. He, he would argue that there is this kind of um, trigger that happens in your life. And when you have that happen, you tend to fall into roles that you were scripted to play. You either fall into the victim role where you kind of are the one who gets preyed upon or you kind of, you become the aggressor. And um, this again happens all the time. I, I find this completely just entirely factual. Uh, the other day we were having lunch with my brother and my brother is seven years older. He was a championship wrestler. I still relish the day I bested him physically, right? <laughs> but he still has that when we get together i fall into the victim he falls into the aggressor and uh and then i just i had this moment we were getting together and, and he was instructing the waiter to do something i didn't want to have done and i just suddenly had this like this huge like no it's not going to happen this time i'm rewriting history you sit there now and he's 63 years old what is he going to do of course he sat down what craziness, but that's, that's just the way you interact. You fall into your role or you try to rebel against your role. And that means that there's this kind of, of paralysis that happens here. And of course, what um, Bell has done is he's made these little, um, these little circles. We go through shock, bargain, denial, inward anger, depression, um, when we're a victim. And then when we are uh, an aggressor, we go through shock, bargain, denial, outward anger and aggression. So there's a kind of interaction with that Nathanson's beautiful compass of shame right there, and that these are kind of their own kind of ways of being. And, and when you're triggered, you go through one or the other, and you're kind of stuck in these cycles that are down there. But there can be a way in which occasionally you can experience um, the experience of surviving. And that goes to a slightly different way of being in which you confront what's going out, you sort it out, you experiment with some new ways of being, and you accept uh, what is the case, and then you become aware. The moment you say, re realize that, that 
you know, your reaction to your brother was just a kind of weird victimization that you were trying to shed <laughs> is a kind of way of thinking through and moving into a survival mode. And then Bell goes even further. And this is what I find interesting. And I, I look forward to learning with you and from you as we learn together. But he argues that we can also move through some practices into thriving in which we begin to experience connection, forgiveness, resilience, gratitude, and passion. We become completely liberated. Now this is a tall order, and it's interesting how he's done it because each of these, these two um, first circles of victim and aggression can move their way to survivor, but of course the arrow goes down again. And you can always devolve again into that kind of binary. It's so easy. And then from survivor, you can actually move to being a thriver. And that's where you consciously practice these, um, the things that we're going to be talking about, the practice of forgiveness or the practice of faith. Now, as Bill describes faith, I find this... Um, it's not simply a belief beyond yourself, as I'll say next week. It's actually a kind of deeper belief in a kind of rhythm that happens in our lives of moving from order to disorder to reorder. And we have to spend our time thinking about that. So I'm going to close today, and then I'm going to open it up for conversation and questions with two strategies for thriving that, um, that work. Now, uh, I tend to find mindfulness to be incredibly helpful. There's a lot of research about this that says that practicing mindful meditation actually helps you. Um, this is not something you need to do. I still will love you. Jesus will love you if you don't do mindful meditation. I promise you. I, I haven't, I'm not one of those people that's 10 minutes into conversion. You know, the people who are like, you know, my, my father was an AA and there would always be like the one person who was brand new to sobriety. And they were just so irritating because everything was connected to the program in one way or another, right? Um, and, um, and, I, and I realized that I have that tendency as well with mindfulness. So I don't, have any expectations that you're going to find this helpful, but I find it helpful and I'll talk about it. And then it's reflexive practice, which can help us identify, express, and embrace the trauma and grieving we experience so that we thrive. And what all of this is meant to do is to expand what um, psychologists have come to call the window of tolerance. So that when you practice mindfulness, and we'll just go about that in a second, but when you practice mindfulness or even a thriving reflective practice, what happens is that median point where you're most engaged becomes larger and those places where you are shutting down or where you're completely agitated and reactive, those tend to get smaller when you have growth. And so, um, the window of tolerance sounds, it, only a psychologist would come up with this, right? Because it doesn't sound like super exciting. I'm in the window of tolerance, but it really is kind of exciting. It's when you're kind of optimally problem solving, you're alert, you're engaged, you're accessing both your emotion and reasoning. You're put together, the pieces of the tissue paper are nicely held together. 
And when you hit agitation, which can happen with any kind of triggering moment, where you get super, super anxious, you find yourself in emotional distress, you can't think clearly, you overreact, you engage in unproductive problem solving, um, you use, this is the way to use it, to use the language from the recovery group, you do whatever it is, and, um, and you kind of, that window begins to get smaller. Or if you are being um, attacked and you just shut down, you tend to become depressed, lethargic, unmotivated, numb, and that can, that, 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 that can close as well. And the way that both of these strategies work is that window can grow, believe it or not, through mindful meditation. It grows in a way that is kind of non-sequential. It's not that you meditate. It's not like, you know, when Luke Skywalker goes into Jabba the Hutt's lair to free Princess Leia and Han Solo, and he kind of goes in, like, all into his meditative state, like he's going to fight his way out of it. Um, that's not how mindfulness works. It's not like you, you can't wield it like a weapon. It's something that you do that centers you and then things get better. Um, so mindfulness, this is <laughs> my rough and ready. Uh, I took a course with it at the University of Michigan and I couldn't find my notes. So this is me, this is me what I'm saying. I, this is my approach to mindfulness, which is to find time to become meditatively aware of our purpose in the present moment so that we can non-judgmentally accept things as they are. So the steps are simple. Sit comfortably with both feet, planted on the ground in an environment free from interruptions. And sometimes I do that before worship, some of you have noticed. Close your eyes and bring your attention to your breathing. Take slow, deep breaths in and out. Listen to your body, that's the key. Begin with your toes and work your way to your head and ask yourself, where does it hurt? Where, do you, where, is your, where are you feeling things? And then acknowledge when that happens. Perhaps you've got an old injury that this humidity kicks up, as I do in my left ankle. I sprained that ankle when I was 17 years old. And every time it gets a little humid, it just flares up a bit. And when you notice that tension, and feel it, that little bit of pain, instead of blocking it out, instead of saying, oh, I gotta just push myself beyond it, give it room to be. Acknowledge it. <laughs> thank, thank God for it, if you're a spiritual person, which I hope you are. And then acknowledge, um, as you get more practiced, sometimes it helps to meditate on something that's troubling you and continue to take deep breaths. And sometimes, although I didn't have time to write that here, think about something that gave you incredible joy. Yesterday I was with the kids and I was carrying these pipes and I was wearing my collar and I was trying to stay dry, which was impossible. And I just started to sweat and then I got upset about sweating for reasons why. Well, it was, you know, it was just the humidity was like 80%. And then I was trying to work my way. I had sneakers on, which was foolish. I should have worn boots. And I was going through this muddy, awful kind of tundra of water. 
and I was trying to stay dry while I was carrying the pipes. And then finally, my feet just got completely wet and soaked. And I suddenly experienced this weird point of liberation. It was okay to be wet. I didn't melt. I wasn't the witchy witch of the West, you know. And so acknowledge those thoughts and feelings and give them room in your awareness for them to be. And then finally finish with a few deep breaths of gratitude and acceptance. Um, the reflective practice that we do is not a competitor with mindfulness, but it's a kind of awareness when we do something that is intentional. And so finding an empathic community, which I hope will be us, gathering to talk through some of these things is what we hope to do over the next couple of uh, weeks. Um, think about the practice of faith. That is to cultivate a spirituality that balances a centered se sense of self with the sense of God's presence in us and the wider world we live in. Develop a kind of practice of connection. Develop a sense of healthy boundaries that helps us create nurturing and positive relationships. I love the way that this, um, that Bill describes connection as beginning with healthy boundaries. That's so helpful for me, uh, for many reasons. Forgiveness, I tweak this. Practice self-compassion. Uh, I think it's impossible to forgive without forgiving yourself. Um, that's the first step. And forgive um, our own shortcomings and others for hurting us. Resilience, develop ways to manage and recalibrate our bodies so that we can bounce back. And for me, mindfulness is really helpful as well as centering prayer. Anything that gets me back to bring my head and, and heart together and my body and soul together is helpful for me. Gratitude, cultivate a thankful heart and serve others so that we can place our lives in a wider context in which the universe can be trusted. For me, um, the Ignatian exercises always begins by giving thanks to God for that day and treating it as a gift, not a given. And finally, generosity. Give ourselves so that in the process we gain the self we are becoming by God's grace. Get your body moving with others. So that's our, that's our presentation. And uh, I'm happy to go back um, to talk about any of these things. I should have put one more slide in that said questions, comments, but we're at 12.05. Um, what do you want to do? Chris has got a, a, a microphone so that we can keep going with this. Any comments, any questions? I'm interested to know, Amy, obviously, I, I was okay. I mean, you're the psychologist in the room. We're going to have a lot of psychologists connected with this, interested in obviously what you think or others. First of all, I think you did a great job. I started reading the book yesterday, and I've gotten about halfway done, and it's a wonderful book. It's worth reading the whole book. Now, I find it easy, but maybe it's because it's what I work with. But I think he's a great author. He's clear. Everything is laid out. It's worth reading the whole thing, not just showing up for the Thrive piece. 
And I can say it's readable. It's not over your, everybody's heads. Anyone else for a question? Come on. Yeah. Um, the part about forgiveness, uh, self-forgiveness, um, and being a member in the recovery community, um, so much is a focused on getting away outside of self and that when we center and focus on ourselves and we're blocking God's, you know, God's love and God's, God's will. So this notion of forgiving oneself, I was always confused with how that transcends that. Am I being selfish and thinking that I can have to forgive myself or, and blocking out God's power to I, I think that that's so important that you said that because as you saw in my sermon today, one of the things that that picture that Watts did in 1894, um, it was just unremittent shame. And, and that whole idea of the folds in the garment was meant to suggest that he was just in his head. He was uh, homo cravatase is what Augustine said. He was turned in on himself. And AA views that as like, the root cause of addiction in some ways is that shame that gets turned in on yourself and you have to get out of it. Now, I think that that's really, really helpful and it, it answers the questions that so many of us ask and it speaks to us. This all being said, I find self-compassion to be really key um, because at the end of the day, you have to forgive yourself for these moments in which you don't fulfill everything. And, there's been a lot of literature on self-compassion that kind of came alongside mindfulness and it also comes along trauma studies where forgiving yourself is key. Um, uh, because you can't make amends to everybody, right? And, and, there, and amends are good when you've, um, because of your addiction, you know, stolen from another person. <laughs> I'm just gonna be very blunt, right? But, a lot of us are in relationships that are kind of toxic and codependent. And learning how to manage that is important. And you can't quit your toxic relationship with your mother like you can quit something that causes you addiction, right? So you're always gonna be locked in. And the only way forward is to have a little compassion upon yourself from my perspective. So thank you for saying that. Thank you. And Doug, you, did you have your hand up? No, you said <laughs> One of these days, Doug's going to ask a question. <laughs> One of these days. <laughs> Kathleen. The book is Randall Bell. It's called Post-Traumatic Thriving. And um, if you Google it, you'll see it. And you know, I have this ability to bring a lot of people here to Christchurch Cranbrook. And I wrote him fully expectant that I could get him here to do a presentation. Never answered me back. I have no idea. Like, not even, like, Brene Brown answered me saying, you are not in my price range. <laughs> like, like, just give it up, <laughs> you know. But, like, Bell did not. So I might have hit the, the wrong button or something. I might try one more time. Um, I'm going to be frank about the book. The concepts that he does are so clearly done. They are worth their weight in gold. And um, the cognitive uh, work that he does with brain chemistry is in brain, um, and, and parts of the brain, truly, truly great. Um, his storytelling ability is not his strength. So I read a couple of the stories and then I just kind of skipped it, um, which is fine. 
I'm getting to be that age where it's okay to skip parts of a book. And uh, if you focus on the concepts, he's great. He, he's not a, no one's going to confuse him with, um, uh, you know, Hemingway. Any other questions? You can get it on Kindle. You can get it, uh, yeah, it's, it's free on Kindle. I, that's how I'm reading it. 99 cents. 99 cents, practically free. Anybody else? Well, thank you for being here. Let's close with prayer, and we'll let you get about your day. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. We thank you, dear God, for this wonderful group of people who have gathered together to name the things that have wounded them and to practice a new way of being. And we give you thanks that you are here among us that you have been waiting for this day and that you considered this gathering to be incomplete without each of us who is here personally or virtually work through the imperfections of our work and our witness so that everyone can experience your love and healing. Help us to grow together. Help us to be connected. Help us to be resilient. Help us to develop uh, gratitude and, and, and exercise forgiveness to ourselves and others. Help us to have faith and give us generous hearts today and always together. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.